Everybody, 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 drop your Welcome back to Drop Your Buffs. I'm Sean Ross. I'm Evan Ross Katz. And we are here with our long-promised, much-anticipated blockbuster mailbag episode. We're going to the tree mail. We're collecting all of the voice memos that people have sent us over the course of 41 that we weren't able to use in the podcast for time reasons, uh, but also things that people just wanted to ask us about survivor history and get our opinions and takes on. And so we have compiled all of those today, almost all of them. We do have a lot. And I hope this becomes a regular staple in our podcast moving forward, having this listener feedback discussion. Uh, And I'm super excited to get into them. Me too. I think it's, I mean, we say this all the time, but the fact that anyone listens to this podcast is in itself a joy. And then the fact that people want to express their feelings or ask us questions or, or, you know, get in on the conversation is incredible. And so I want to underline a sentiment we share often, but like we appreciate. Absolutely. So let's get straight into it with our first voice memo. Hey, Sean and Evan. I'm Liz from Maple Grove, Minnesota. On the last podcast, you both sort of opened up the floor to questions unrelated to season 41. So I felt like that was my invitation to ask two questions that I've been thinking about. So this is a two-parter. I watched season one of Survivor when it first aired and started rewatching from the beginning with quarantine and I fell in love all over again. It's become an almost borderline obsession. But I'll admit, I'm not a super fan in the way that I don't go online and learn all I can about everyone and everything. So first, the easy question, what is Ponderosa? (laughs) I've heard you mention it a few times, and I can kind of gather that it's a place or, you know, maybe a restaurant or hotel that the contestants go after they are voted off. Um, I totally get that the answer is a short Google search away, but I so love your commentary, opinions, and descriptions that I'd much rather hear you tell me about it. Um, Second, I just finished season 19 in Samoa, and the word deserving was thrown around quite a bit. I'm just curious what you guys think about that word deserve. What does it mean to deserve to be in the game or to deserve to win? And is there even such a thing in Survivor? What are your thoughts on what qualifies one as deserving? Um, Anyway, since I've been rewatching, I've been wishing I could have Survivor conversations with someone um, like the two of you have. And I so love listening to your podcast. It makes me feel like I'm a part of it all. So thanks so much. Liz, thank you. Liz! Should Love we start Liz. with the easy question? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you should take it. You've you've had more ample history with Ponderosa. Well, this is the thing. I do and I don't because I have sort of a very spotty history with Ponderosa in the way that I have watched it and the way that I have followed it and even in my understanding of it. And I did a little bit of Googling. I tried not to do a whole lot of homework for this episode because I wanted it to be off the top of my head. But I can't find the origin of the name Ponderosa. But to answer Liz's question, yes, Ponderosa is essentially a resort that is nearby to the filming location where the cast, both pre-merge and post-merge jury, go after they are voted out. 
And I assume that it picked up the name Ponderosa because one of the early resorts was called Ponderosa. That's always an assumption I've had. I cannot confirm that. And if anybody knows the answer, please voice memo me and tell me the history of Ponderosa because I'm dying to know. Um, But essentially, and and, okay, so there's two things I want to say about Ponderosa. One is that at some point, obviously, they started recording the castaways at Ponderosa sort of like after the jury starts to get collected so we can see what they're up to and kind of what the jury is thinking. It sort of reminds me of, at least in the early days of Big Brother, I don't know if they still do this, but they would show clips from the jury house and they would get like a little tape from that week's uh, events and they would sort of have an understanding of what's going on and maybe they still do that. But I think that Ponderosa functioned in the same way and it was like online content specifically Uh, And then it started to get a little weird. It started to get a little spotty. Sometimes they would just not do Ponderosa. Most of the times they would. And uh, I don't actually know how it all started. And it's something that I would like to dig into. I think that a potential like deep dive for us in the future is on Ponderosa. I know it's kind of hard to find the clips for every season, but a lot of them are out there. And I think that there's a lot of golden content that even I have not yet discovered about Ponderosa. There is a clip from Survivor One World between Alicia and Kat. Um, Alicia arrives uh, to Ponderosa thinking that they, now that her and Kat are both, you know, uh, no longer in the game, that everything that happened, that transpired in the game will, you know, be null and void. And Kat is clearly not over the events of the game, feeling some type of way, and a enormous fight uh, erupts and it's just really captivating. But one one question I have for you, you mentioned pre and post merge, but it was my mm. understanding that the pre merge people actually go to a resort and go on a trip. That's not filmed. Is that, was that that's how correct. it was done? Oh, okay. Yeah. So they don't film Ponderosa episodes as I think Ponderosa has come to mean a couple of things. Ponderosa is the place they go after they get voted out. But Ponderosa is also the show that's produced for online based like after the jury starts to be collected. But in fact, the pre-merge jury also go to Ponderosa. And it's not like the first person who gets voted off is immediately sent on a trip. They usually collect a few and then send them on the trip. So they are actually living at Ponderosa. You will hear pre-merge people talk about Ponderosa. You remember when Sugar was on, she talked about being at Ponderosa in Heroes vs. Villains and waiting for Randy to get there uh, and what Sari told her after she got there. So they were collecting people uh, and then like uh, probably for like economic reasons and stuff, they'll collect a few people and then send them on their trip. And then as more people come out, they'll catch up with the trip. So they do go to Ponderosa and you will sometimes hear stories about pre-merge Ponderosa. I would definitely recommend uh, for anyone interested, there's a full compilation video on YouTube of the winners at war Ponderosa. And so it ends up being about 45 minutes. So it ends up playing out like an episode all its own. And it's a little atypical than your standard Ponderosa. It's more because of the nature of who the contestants are reflecting on their overarching experience on the show. And but also atypical because they had been on Edge of Extinction for almost their absolutely. entire time. So they're all arriving at Ponderosa at the same time. Totally. And one of the fun things about that particular Ponderosa is they kind of, all, to your point, they're all letting go of the game collectively at the same time, mm. in addition to the fact that they all, Survivor is a bigger part of those players' lives than your standard player. So that is a particularly good one to watch. But Liz, I think it's interesting that you've chosen to sort of like watch the show without sort of like the 
Googling during, which I think is very enviable because sometimes, oftentimes, you learn things about players outside of the game that taints your view of them within the game. So I like the pure method of your your viewing. Yeah, should we talk about uh, Liz's second question around what it means to deserve to be in the game and deserve to win? I think this is like potentially another episode on all for its its own topic. It's without a doubt its own episode, but I also want to like tip my hat to Liz in that that question alone shows me or tells me whatever that the people listening to this podcast are our people, right? Like the, that that framework of thinking about the show is absolutely in line with how we think about the show, like how we talk about the show. And mm-hmm. I love the idea of like unpacking a term like deserve. I think that's fascinating. I think it has certainly evolved over time. Um, I think it means many things for many players in that I think that there are like two simple ways to view it, right? So there's deserved in the sense of like, what is their story outside of the show? And in what ways could this money enrich their lives? So that's like one angle of deserved, which I think is the sort of like more original intention behind Mm -hmm. deserved. And then I think over time uh, with the emergence of like talk of resume, it's gone on to mean like your uh, contributions to the game itself. And I think it can be like a mixture of the two, um, but I think uh, it has a complex uh, meaning in that it, it can sort of be both or can be one. But I think these days, especially in looking at like uh, more modern seasons of the game, I think it's more reflective of your your gameplay. Because also increasingly, as you saw with 41, more of these people come in with backstories that are given to both the fellow players and to the audience that makes it harder to point at like, oh, this person could do more with the money because often with these casts, many of those people could do a lot of things with this money that would, you know, make their lives better. So I think it's definitely evolved. What do you think? Yeah, well, when I think about the term deserved, it's like I've got a really complicated relationship with it because often we're talking about deserving in terms of winning or at least making it to final tribal and who's being brought to final tribal. And I have always held the belief that the person who wins the season deserved to win the season. They obviously did what they had to do to get to the final tribal, win the respect of the jury in in whatever way that that means for that season. And so therefore they are deserving just by the very nature of the way that the game played out. And the exciting thing about Survivor for me is that there is no one way to do that because every season is different because you're dealing with the people that you were put on the island with. And they have their own personal human motivations that drive them and determine who they're willing to vote for in the end, whether it's somebody who outwitted them or outplayed them or that they like, uh, that they're willing to lose against. And that's what makes it really exciting for me. On the other hand, I'll very easily and flippantly say, you know, so-and-so deserved to win. Sugar deserved to win Gabon. (laughs) Like, I'll very easily say that, or I'll very easily say, Parvati deserved to win Heroes vs. Villains. That's not saying I'm saying I'm I'm backing at this very moment, but, like, that's something I've said before. Uh, And so, and then you get, there's a big conversation right now, uh, just post 41, about whether Xander deserved to win over Erica. And we might get into that a little bit more later in the episode, but that is like a huge conversation online. And I just think that it's like, it's very short-sighted to get into those kinds of conversations because the very fact that Erica won or that Sandra won or that Bob won their own seasons 
demonstrates that they deserved to win. I mean, the jury decides who is the winner and the juries come with very, very nuanced and complex motivations. So I think that that's what's so exciting about Survivor and what is so complex about approaching the term deserved in one specific way or through one lens. Right. And and we are totally aligned on how we feel about this. Like, you know, I think Amber is one of the best examples of the fact that Amber mm. deserved to win All-Stars. Um, many people will not feel that way. And they can argue that. And they, they're valid with their feelings. But we feel like if you win this game, you deserve to win this game. That said, I think one of the reasons we love the show and the complexities of the show is that Bitter juries exist. And so I think what people get tripped up on is there are people like a Tony in season 40 that win because the jury overwhelmingly wants the player to win. And then you have situations like Amber with All-Stars in which the jury, many, if not all, are voting more because they don't want her competitor, in that case Rob, to win. So it's more of a default win. But again, winning by default, like that might be how they articulate, you know, how they feel about it. But if you win, you deserve to win. So, yeah, I think it's definitely something that's interesting. I, I think that the the way it's become a, a bigger part of uh, the conversation within Final Tribal is also interesting um, because there have been times where using the logic of who could do more with the money, you would say, well, then the wrong winner was certainly Mm. rewarded. So yeah, I think it's um, more than anything, I think it's not concrete, but I think it's an interesting thing to dissect. It also comes just so much from the edit and the storytelling of the show, because so often the fandom come to the term deserved with who did we like watching play the most, whether that's because they're an interesting character or because they made quote unquote big moves that were shown by the show. I mean, lots of people said, where were Erica's moves? Well, we can blame the editors, I think, to a certain extent for why we feel that way. Well, that makes me think about Sugar, for instance, in that because she was so often relegated to the Sugar Shack, we, the audience, were spending a lot more time with Sugar than the players themselves. So I actually think that's a unique season to sort of zoom in on because we were ingratiated to her because we saw her, you know, uh, having a good time and not being so sort of hung up on the game. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously the players felt differently about it. So yeah, I think a lot too goes into the edit in terms of the deservingness. The one thing I would like... I do not get into is like the people that if you don't feel a certain player deserve to win by all means, you're entitled to that opinion. The people that get loud online about people not deserving. I think that that's just such loser behavior mm-hmm. um, because they won. So it's like, it, it, this reminds me of uh, people with Trump losing the 2020 election where it's just like, you got to face reality at some point. And so yeah. I feel like, yes, you might not think they deserve to win, but to go online and sort of like argue again, I'm sure I think a Xander question might be coming up about this, but it's like Erica deserved to win period. Yeah. The Xander stands no need to storm tribal council. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's go to our next voice memo. Another Ponderosa comment. Hey, Sean and Evan, Garrett from LA here. Uh, My question slash thought is about Ponderosa. I'd only watched it sporadically prior to this season, uh, but after your glowing wreck of Tiffany's episode, I tuned in every week. It mostly seems to be like a gauzy puff piece, but I'm curious if it's ever really added a dimension to the viewing of the show. Specifically, I'm thinking about the way in which like Untuck sometimes functions for Drag Race. Like the Vixen season, I had friends who didn't watch it, so they loved Eureka and hated the Vixen, whereas I, an Untucked viewer, felt the opposite. 
Are there seasons of Survivor where Ponderosa kind of fills in the experience of the game and the jury? And if not, what do you think about a version of Ponderosa that is less probed porn and more gameplay centric? Uh, thanks so much. Love the pod. Well, I think this is really, really fascinating because, I mean, I think a lot of people know I like a drag race survivor comparison. Um, but Sean, you've seen more Ponderosa than I have, so I think you should answer first. Yeah, well, I, I just have to be upfront about this and similar to my previous answer. I haven't seen all the Ponderosas and even the ones that I watch, it would like I would watch sporadically in terms of like, did I want to see what the player who was voted out got up to? Like there's many players I just don't care about after they're voted out, especially, you know, like most of the men. And so I wasn't that interested in watching their Ponderosas. I think it's a little bit different than Untucked in that Ponderosa tends to be a character study of the person who was voted out as opposed to uh, like the Big Brother jury house seat, seeing what the jury is up to and thinking. Um, You certainly get snippets of that, but I have not, I am not well versed enough in Ponderosa, I'll be the first to admit, to point to a season where Ponderosa uh, really illuminated something about the way that the jury was thinking. Uh, I mean, the most iconic Ponderosa, of course, is the one that we talked at length with Courtney about where the jury uh, formed the dragons, the band uh, made up of the jury members who were voted out, notably Courtney and JT and Coach. And like, I think that that's an interesting example because it was like, this insane game was going on in Heroes versus Villains, and we knew that the jury kind of didn't give a shit. And it's not to say that like the wrong person won or anything like that, but I'm saying what's interesting about watching that Ponderosa, which I did watch all of, is that it illuminated for us that the jury did not have their mind on the game. And so we were seeing player after player come into Ponderosa, really feeling down about it, but then being brought into this bizarro world where they've created a rock band and that's their main concern. Yeah, I'm I'm not interested in Ponderosa at all, unless it's like a rare instance where it's someone like a Tiffany who I'm curious to see more of. I think the one thing that Ponderosa can add and a distinguishing factor about it is that the cast is fed. Um, so you're experiencing these people, uh, who are starving for 39 or 26 days and you don't often, or I shouldn't say you, I, as a viewer often forget about that, uh, and the circumstances of like what starvation does to one's mental self. Like we see the physical, right? But we don't always, we're not always aware of sort of like the mental, um, you know, gymnastics, not gymnastics, everything that they're going through, right? As a byproduct of not having food and having, having a limited food and water supply, So that part can be interesting and just sort of like seeing them in a little bit more of like how they might be in their day-to-day lives. The reason why I don't really want an untucked, survivor's version of untucked is similar to why I don't really like untucked anymore, which is that like, yes, occasionally you get a Eureka Vixen type, you know, story that, that you were alluding to Garrett. But, but the reality is that there are a ton of like dud players who you don't really like once they're voted off, it's very much good riddance and there isn't like story left to resolve. And so why I think it's very shrewd that they don't try and do more of like a, the person comes back from Ponderosa and faces everybody is because I just don't think there's inherent drama in that unless you really have like the cat uh, situation that I mentioned earlier um, mm. in which it's like they have business to to attend to Cat and Alicia. Um, 
but ordinarily it's like kind of like, you know, like I think about, for instance, like when Nasir left in season 41, like I wasn't thinking I got everything, like everything, the story had completed, the limited story that there was had completed. So I just don't think there's a necessity for it. The only outlier, and as you're saying with heroes versus villains is when you, I, I do think there's value when it's an all-stars cast because you're more invested in them. And in the case of like, when your bestie goes out early, um, you have the possibility of spending some more time with them. Like I really value, the only reason I liked Edge of Extinction on Winners at War was because I got more time with my girls, right? Mm. And like, and, and same with vis Ponderosa as well. So I don't think you're missing out on much, but I, I don't think that they could really untuck it if they wanted to. Um, I just think Tiffany's happened to be a highlight. I would say though, thinking about 41, the th- there was an interesting sort of thread that started happening through Ponderosa and that was Shan's sort of understanding of her boot, which of course was like a pivotal moment in 41. And then through Ponderosa, we learned, oh, Shan didn't know that Ricard voted for her. She thought that Liana voted for her. And so her whole understanding of the way that she left the game continued to like unravel or rather come together as each of her alliance members came to Ponderosa and then sort of like culminated when Ricard came to Ponderosa and she just like ghosted him. So in that way, like it did, although it didn't really have an impact in the game, it could have if Ricard had been in the final three. I would argue though that that should be a secret scene that's released on social media. Like if I were part of the the strategizing team around Survivor, because I think that there are lots of people out there that would be interested in that and mm-hmm. have no idea that that kind of footage is available, but aren't interested in the commitment of Ponderosa on the regular, because mm-hmm. that is such an outlier of an example. But like, even you talking about that now, I'm like, oh, I maybe should go back and watch that because that's really interesting. But I think the producers or social team, whatever, needs to make footage like that, like package it in a way that that to me shouldn't go under the umbrella of Ponderosa, even though it takes place at Ponderosa. That to me is a secret scene. Hmm. But this is all, you know, high level. (laughs) Okay, let's go to another question. Hi, Sean. This is Johnny. I'm in Portland. Love the pod, love Survives, love the both of you. Uh, this is more for your mailbag episode. I am a huge fan of the show on HBO, The Other Two. And I would be remiss if I would not ask you guys to chime in on this. So uh, there is, there's two instances where they kind of mention Survivor. So Carrie, the main kind of gay character, he has this straight roommate who watches Survivor and makes him watch Survivor, uh, and uh, Carrie and his sister call Survivor, like, just, like, violently straight. They call Survivor violently straight. Um, And then uh, later, when Carrie is confronting his straight roommate and kind of, quote-unquote, breaking up with him in a way, um, he's like, I can't believe you watch Survivor over and over. It's the same thing. Uh, Survivor sucks. And then the, the straight roommate's like, well, not Micronesia. And then Carrie's like, oh, yeah, that season did change the game. And I thought, who better to chime in on these two kind of concepts? One, why is Survivor seen as violently straight? Like, is that a thing? Is that, is that how you guys feel? Uh, and then two, how did Micronesia change the game? Be well, XOXO, love the pod. Thank you so much. Well, I first want to shout out uh, Chris Kelly, the co-creator of The Other Two, who is a listener 
of Drop Your Buffs. Um, and Chris Kelly and I uh, have voice memoed quite a bit during my initial Survivor journey about the show. So I think uh, you see Survivor pop up on shows from time to time like as dialogue. I know it happened too with like Q-Force. And I think that just, you know, gay people work <laughs> in television and gay people watch Survivor. And so it, it finds its way into, you know, pop culture references. Um, should we take the, so breaking down, First, uh, let's do the, violently straight. Yeah. First. Well, I don't think it has that perception. Um, but I, the only thing I would say about that would be, I think that if you look at the numbers, um, of winners and sort of like the trend of the show rewarding men largely in the latter half of its run, I think that could be something that makes, makes people per- perceive it a certain way. Um, and in looking at, um, the female winners that you've had, whether it be in the later seasons, Kim or Denise or Natalie or Sarah, you don't really get a lot of like uh, feminine, f- feminine women, like ultra femme women, like you do like a uh, Natalie, for instance. So even just like the, there is something about this show where like, yeah, you're not, you're just not getting a ton of feminine female winners, which I feel like is aggressively straight, but I realize that femininity is and heterosexuality are not exactly the same thing. So yeah, I'm working through this thought in real time. I, I, I have to yeah, disagree. Cut me off. Cut me I think off. it is violently straight a little bit to like Survivor. I don't think that Survivor in and of itself is violently straight, but I think that the culture surrounding it may be. Oh, And yeah. so look, you're listing the female winners of late and... Uh, the one who would be the quote-unquote feminine female winner, Michelle, uh, you know, not not looking at Erica at this moment because Erica had not won at the time that this show aired. Uh, Michelle was like totally lambasted after her yeah. win for being like uh, not a good winner, not deserving. There's that word again. And uh, that that Aubrey should have won, right? Who is not this the same sort of character type as Michelle. And I think that what's violently straight about Survivor is the fandom. And I think you can see that by going on Reddit. And, and so, like, I don't want to paint Reddit with one single brush, but like, because I think that there are a lot of level-headed normal people on Reddit, but there's a lot that are not. And there's a lot of people, I mean, you go to the Survivor Facebook comments. Wow, that is violently straight. Um, but there are pockets out there Uh, and I hope that we are in one of them, that is like, wait a second, the show itself is not. It's this culture around the show, and it's like the people who have hung on to the show, the vocal ones tend to be sort of like 40-year-old men in their mother's basement. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but like when they're like a little incel-y, there is something wrong with it. And I think that that tends to be a very loud faction of the fandom of Survivor. Part of the reason that I was convinced to do this podcast <laughs> by Evan is that I was like, well, wait a second, there really isn't. There's a there's plenty of podcasts. Uh, they're almost all hosted by men. There are some uh, where we have women hosts, but they're almost all hosted by men. They're all cis heterosexual men, and while they're not all toxic or anything, they are all coming to the show from that perspective. And so like, you know, as we say, we started this to like celebrate the women of survivor history, the unsung women and the unsung queer players, because that doesn't really get a lot of attention in the vocal survivor community. 
But there are so many people, which we've learned from doing this podcast, that really thrive off of that and love that. And I think there's it's there in Survivor, the product, if you just look at it objectively. But when you look at it in the broader cultural context and the uh, sort of like conversation that happens around it, that's where it starts to get a little violently straight. But also, I mean, these casts are incredibly straight. I mean, mm-hmm. there's been, yeah, if you look at it, it's like, it, and that's changing. But I would say, okay, I would break it down really quickly and look at like season one um, versus season 21 versus season 41. So you have like the Rudy Richard interaction in which it's like, Rudy is like just so is is can't believe the fact that he actually likes Rich and Rich is gay. Like it's like that he is he's he he likes Rich and he he understands that, but it, it's incongruous to like something and that's something to be gay. And then you have twenty one with Shannon. Uh, I believe Shannon's twenty one, or is he? I think he's season twenty one. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Shannon and his giant areolas. Um, but Shannon has this comment where he tries to call out Bill, another player at the tribal council, and ask him if he's gay for no reason at all. And Jeff's reaction to that question is like sort of just like he's almost like entertained by the the conversation rather than push back and be like, why are we discussing your you know a player's sexuality that has nothing to do with the game. Then you have 41 where you have like this sort of like plethora of queer players, some of whom their queerness wasn't even discussed on the show because it wasn't central to they either didn't disclose it or the footage didn't air or whatever. But I kind of love that because it's Mm -hmm. like there's just so much queerness. So I think the aggressive heterosexuality of the show has shifted over time. Um, But yeah, I, I think to your point, I think the fandom is really where things might get aggressively um heterosexual now to go back really quickly though to my point there's nothing to my femininity point which seems a little off topic that i i I don't know where i was really going with that but i guess what i'm all just trying to say is i want more variety within our winners um Mm -hmm. in terms of experience because i feel like we get there's a certain archetype of the female winners on this show that they often have to be so physically strong. And I think that that perception does exist for non fans of the show that survivor is a game of physicality and that's not the case. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about how Micronesia changed the game. I mean, this is kind of like a random uh, line to have in the show. And I don't, I don't know that I can point to like why Micronesia changed the game, except to say, and I don't think that they mean changed the game in terms of the, the game of Survivor. I think they mean changed the game in terms of like Survivor as a piece of entertainment. I think that that's how I'm reading it. And if that's the case, then I think it's because uh, of two things. One, the Aussie blind side, which we've talked about before was I think one of it's it's certainly not one of the first blind sides. Uh, it's far from it, but it is one of the first shocking blind sides to the point where uh, the show started to edit blind sides for the sake of blindsiding the audience as opposed to it being an actual blind side because the moment when Ozzy was blindsided in Micronesia was so impactful and such a moment for the show that they started to manufacture that. So I think it's a game changer in that way. And I also think that the uh, Black Widow Alliance, the Black, Brid- Black Widow Brigade Alliance of women who went to the end and like were able to talk Eric out of the necklace and all the things that we know that they did changed it in terms of like just like an incredible viewing experience that I think really resonated with like gay fans and women 
and uh, in a way that like a lot of the earlier seasons did not. Yeah. In addition to that, I think there's a dynamism about the characters in that season in particular, particularly particularly those final five women um, that you're rooting for them. I mean, there's always players you're rooting for, but I felt like I was rooting for them. I had a vested interest in that win. One other thing I think is worth pointing out was, I mean, for uh, uh, Micronesia really is the second All-Star season. Mm-hmm. You know, you have All-Stars season eight, but that really was like the height of Survivor. And this is coming eight seasons later. Um, and so the show has changed a lot, right? It's their it's their second attempt. It's not a full All-Star season. It's a half All-Stars. But it really was a, fo- it was still a relatively new formula. And it was really their second attempt at bringing, um, you know, they brought Stephanie and Bobby John back. There had been returning players, but that was really like their second attempt at an All-Stars um, after the bizarre first attempt at All-Stars. And so I think it was definitely uh, sort of like, I, I think of uh, Micronesia a little bit the same way Drag Race fans think about All-Stars 2. Um, and I actually think it's a really apt comparison because I think All-Stars 1 in Survivor and in uh, uh, Drag Race are very similar. But I just think there was a, an alchemy of the timing, the cast, the blind side, as you mentioned, the female alliance. I think it just captured people and... I also really like it because I think in comparison to people that are like heroes versus villains, heroes versus villains is like a big epic game of survivor. Micronesia is a little smaller in its scale, Mm -hmm. but the moves are just as like gobsmacking, but there's something about heroes versus villains where it's like, it's not a normal season of survivor. Micronesia feels like a normal season, just an outstanding normal season. It was like a little bit, I don't want to say a fluke, but I don't think anyone was expecting what Micronesia was going into it. You know what I mean? I think it was surprising and for that reason, fun and exciting. And it was an all-star season that worked. I mean, if we say, if I I think we can all to some level agree that all-stars one didn't really work. Right. Uh, And then this sort of like half version of all-stars really worked. And then I think, I think Heroes versus Villains doesn't exist without Micronesia. Absolutely. And I think it's worth remembering, too, like who Parvati was at that time. I mean, mm-hmm. if you go back and watch Cook Islands, she's I mean, as far as, far as she goes in Cook nobody. Islands. Yeah, she's not a big character at all. So to have her back, I, I wouldn't say it was random. There have been way more random returnees, but it was like pretty random. It's hard to remember the Parvati that stepped onto the beach of day one. I think that is like one of the biggest like arcs of like just like. She stepped on that beach a pretty, yeah, pretty random player and and came away, I mean, one of the most iconic winners in history. So um, go watch Micronesia. Okay, let's get to a question about goats. Hi, guys. This is Cameron from Northern Virginia. Um, Just a couple thoughts on the season before the finale. Um, First of all, um, for casting for Erica, I'm going to go with Lana Condor. I don't think she's Filipina, but I think she has a similar energy, and I think she can pull it off. Second, um, the thing with not bringing Heather to the end, I think this is very much, like you guys were saying, similar to Old School Survivor, where it was better to bring the best of the best, you know, we like not bringing goats to the end because you need to really prove yourself um, to be the winner and all that, you know, which they very much did back in the beginning. It was like seen as bad to bring someone to bring a goat to the end. Um, and I think that might play out this year. I can see the jury reacting well to that. Uh, we saw a little bit of that in season 40 with Natalie and her not doing the fire and that they got mad about that and they were like, you don't deserve it because of that or whatever. 
I thought that was kind of stupid. But anyway, um, third note, I learned about the term goat meaning someone, someone bad or useless or whatever through Survivor. And it's very confusing to me because goat also means the greatest of all time. And I think we just need to come up with two different words. We can't have the same word mean the two opposite things. All right. Would love your thoughts on all this. Thanks. Love the show. Can I just point out, this reminds me of the term rash, which is a synonym to irrational, but it's the shortened version of the word rational. And I have the exact same feeling. I'm completely with you, Cameron. Goat is so confusing, especially to a newbie to Survivor Mm -hmm. when you're explaining the term goat within the Survivor verse, but they're familiar with the more colloquial definition. So we are aligned. Yeah. So I actually did a little bit of research on this and- There is a great article about the term goats in Survivor on the website Inside Survivor. I think the article is actually written by Martin Holmes, who runs that website. And it's a great history of the term goat in like literature and history and then sort of like where it comes from in Survivor. And what's really like what really fascinated me, because I associate goat with Cagayan. And because that's the first time that I remember hearing it. But in fact, the first time that it was brought up was in Survivor All-Stars and Ethan said it uh, about bringing a goat to the end or who's a goat or something like that. Uh, And then it more famously was said about Philip Shepard by uh, Rob Mariano in Redemption Island. Uh, So then and then again in Cagayan. So and then it's sort of became like commonplace to talk about goats. But it actually like kind of goes back to a fandom thing, which I found really interesting is that in season two on the forum Survivor Sucks, which was a place that I spent a little time lurking on, but never uh, really got into posting on Sucks, uh, that there is a thread that somebody started in season two comparing final fours to four different animals there's like uh bears bunnies goats and foxes or something like that i can't remember um but that that, that's kind of where goat comes from and i know that there were a lot of former players who spent a lot of time on survivor sucks because that for many many years is the place where conversations happened about survivor and that is kind of an infamous thread on survivor sucks and so it is not uh, impossible that Ethan and or Rob were familiar with the terms from Socks and that that's how it got onto the show and became sort of like a commonplace uh, term to refer to somebody who sort of has no chance in the final tribal that you might want to dra- drag there essentially as a sacrificial goat is the idea. Um, so there's a little bit of survivor history for you that I learned today Uh, and I love to hear when sort of like discussion in the fandom sort of bleeds into the show. I think that that's always really interesting and sort of meta. So uh, yeah, in terms of the, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, says the guy who wasn't going to do a ton of research before today. He's like, I'm reading articles about the history of the use of the word goat on Survivor. But go on. That's the only one I did. That's the only one I I did. By all means, I get it. I love it. Uh, so there was some talk, I think, so this, uh, voicemail came in during the course of 41. And I think it's pretty interesting, actually, the way that that turned out in terms of who was a goat, because, you know, throughout the entire season, we were talking about Heather being the goat being dragged to the end. And ultimately, I mean, 
they vote out Ricard, and then Xander chooses to bring Erica. Usually the person that you choose to bring to the final three is the GOAT. He chooses Erica either because he believes that she's a GOAT or because he's just like not reading the situation right or because he thinks that it's honorable to bring her i don't know what his motivation was there but then you know after the fact and and when we talked to ricard we found out oh heather is actually like quite a game player and has some respect and at least had potentially had ricard's vote that she maybe was not the goat and ultimately the goat may have been deciding and that was xander I do think it's worth pointing out, too, that the GOAT conversation shifts a lot when we start having conversations about the fire-making challenge because there comes a power of, in, like, choosing the GOAT um, that in the sort of Ethan era or the Rob era or the earlier years, that didn't exist. You didn't have as much... I mean, you obviously have your vote to control, but you don't have the ability to sort of... uh, the game is not placed into one person's hands in the way it is vis-a-vis the fire-making challenge. Well, I would argue that it did when there was a final two. I mean, and look, we saw Wu make the decision, the the mistake of not bringing the goat. We saw Colby make the mistake of not bringing the goat. Uh, Keith, he should, you know, he brought Tina. Because there was this, like, there was this big conversation at the time in the early days about, the, again, the question deserving, and do we want to go up against who's, who's deserving? And are we going to lose respect for going up against the person who's not deserving? Uh, and then potentially you know like oh no I, yeah yeah i totally agree i think i mean more that in with the fire making challenge because sometimes there's more than one goat i mean you could argue that from xander's perspective both erica and heather could have been perceived as goats so it just you have a situation with fire making in which you might want to keep a goat around but 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 you don't know whether or not that you want to send keep one goat with you don't know if the other goat can defeat someone that you actually want out there's just more variables with the fire making that mm-hmm. makes it less simple but yes i think that i mean yes i think colby's the, the earliest example of uh, a mistake in terms of well i mean tina's not a goat but like yeah i know what you mean no i mean like keith was the goat he should have brought the goat he didn't bring oh. the goat he made a decision to bring the deserving player mm. hey and she deserved yeah, in a no, similar fashion that like Xander made a decision for Yeah, Erica. I think but goats the, of- Xander's is a little bit different because Xander was the goat and he didn't know he was the goat. Exactly, which goes to what I was going to say, which is that I think goat stuff is tricky sometimes too because that there's just so much you don't know from the edit um, that a play like exactly what you were saying with Ricard's comments about Heather, where it's just like we were fed one narrative and we perceived her as a goat and that wasn't the perception with amongst the players. So I think goat talk can be kind of... You can go to it. You don't really ever know. Yeah. Maybe I'm the goat. Okay. (laughs) Let's go to a question, a very specific question from Heroes versus Villains. Hi, Sean and Evan. Um, My name's Adam from Los Angeles. Um, First time listening to the pod. You know, during the pandemic, I kind of started digging into um, Survivor and watched Winners at War first and then went into Parvati um, and didn't watch Cook's Islands, but I watched... um, Heroes and Villains, and Fans are Favorites, and obviously Parvati's um, the number one. But um, I had a question about Heroes and Villains, and when, right before the merge happened, and they had the, um, the villains had the choice of voting out Courtney versus Sandra, I'm still confused why, or, you know, I still don't understand why they chose Sandra, because Courtney seemed a little bit more loyal, to, at least to Parvati, 
and Sander was clearly the smarter, more conniving player, and maybe it wasn't that wasn't as apparent to them. But I'm curious if you've ever heard from Parvati or any of their those members on the villains team why they chose um, Sandra over Courtney because it seems like Sandra w- seems like the more obvious choice. So I think he was cut off, but we know we know what he's asking. Can I give my conjecture because I think you know the answer? Sure. Because I don't, but I, my guess would be that they believed that Sandra was a goat. They believed that no one would vote for Sandra to win the million twice. So it was le- it was more it was lesser of two evils was advancing Sandra. Is that? Well, it's hard to know for sure. So uh, I went to the source and I asked Courtney Yates for her opinion. Wow. To be totally honest, I actually don't know why they kept Sandra instead of me. Um, it seemed really stupid at the time to me, um, simply because I think she's a better player than I am, I think. And, and that is to do with the fact that I am um, much more lazy. So I would have stayed more loyal to Parvati, that is correct, but I would not have been loyal to Russell, and they were really working as a package. Um, Me and I I spoke to Parvati and gave her my pitch, and she, I think, tried to swing it to keep me, but got shot down um, by Russell or whatever. So, um, yeah, Russell had like a real, he was very attached to this idea that Sandra was useless and no one would ever vote for her, which is like she had already won. So I, I don't, I don't understand, but his, his mental, his mental block, um, I think influenced that. And, and then there was also the Courtney knows too many people on the other side, but like we, we all know the same people, like everyone knows everyone. So that's, you know, whatever, maybe the TV answer. Um, but yeah, they, they probably should have kept me, (laughs) um, because Sandra's just, you know, she, whatever. I mean, they learned their lesson for that. Anyway, hi boys. Hi everyone. Thanks for having me. Miss you both. Bye. Oh my God. I can't believe you kept that from me and I'm glad you did. (gasps) (laughs) Only on Drop Your Buffs can you get the answer directly from the source. Wait, that was so iconic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. Hi, Courtney. We love you. Wow. 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 Wait, can I just say to our listeners out there, if you need questions answered, if this is this is not just a forum for you to ask us questions. We might have instances where we go right to the source and, and get things answered. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. And I like the term uh, that Courtney used, Russell's, quote, mental block. Um, yeah, that is a I very... believe she said mental def. Yeah, yeah, that was a very diplomatic <laughs> response. Yeah, this makes sense. I mean, you have two players that are aligned, Parvati and Russell, both with different agendas, and it seems like Russell's agenda and his belief that Sandra was worth goading or you know worth bringing her to the end, dragging her there. Uh, it seems like Russell outweighed Parvati in that situation, which I think you know a strike against Parvati towards you know often people ask why not Parvati versus Sandra for the win, and I think mistakes like that that Parvati made. I also think that, I mean, to Courtney's point, she had a lot of relationships on the Heroes tribe. You know, she had relationships. She told us she was ready to flip immediately to work with Amanda. So they may have like sort of understood that and decided to go with Sandra, whose only potential relationship was Rupert. And we already knew that they kind of had like a little bit of a tumultuous relationship. So that could also be why. This just made, it's like, that is that, I mean, this happens with, I guess many seasons, but that is one of those instances of like, if just one vote would have gone differently on heroes versus mm-hmm. villains, there's just so much, you know, to think about in terms of how 
that season could have played out differently. And we still got an exciting ending, but it's just like, you know, thinking about that specific vote. If Courtney had stayed and linked up with Amanda, and would that have changed the entire trajectory of Amanda's life had she not fallen out of love with the game of Survivor? There's just, you know, we could do a whole, well, we won't for now. Absolutely. Okay. Adam, hope you're happy with that answer. Okay, let's go to another question. Sean, hey Evan, my name's Ian, I'm from Florida, and I think an unsung Survivor player is Julie Berry. She's a fantastic player, one of the really great players on Survivor Vanuatu. I know a lot of people just view her as Jeff's one-time girlfriend, but she's so much more than that. Even though she'll never return, I'd love to see her return. I very much echo your thoughts on live tribal councils. It almost seems as though that the show has forgotten the quintessential story element that it had in old school, which was show us, don't tell us. And I think live tribals are really annoying and honestly isn't good gameplay. You should really have your strategy going into tribal. You should be having plan A, B, and C when you sit down. You shouldn't have to get up and ask people, where should we vote now? Because it makes you look very uncertain and wavery, and it really hurts your chances of winning, in my opinion. Uh, Good luck with the podcast, and I can't wait to hear more. Well, one thing I would say to that, and I think we've spoken about this a little in our discussions about Live Tribal, is for me, the issue is, and this happens a lot on Survivor, where you know, the first live tribal ever happened, I forget what season it was in, and then Survivor, like, has this glee in it, and then so they keep doing it. It's kind of like the whole thing with, like, Jeff's obsession with the term blindside and thinking things are blindsides that aren't blindsides, but needing to, like, say the word. And so I'm okay with the occasional live tribal. The issue is because Jeff loves it so much and is so obvious about it, I think the players now go in knowing how much production loves a live tribal and they just get like like crazy with it. I'm not opposed to someone getting up, going over to somebody else, but once everybody starts standing up and going into their separate groups, it's just silly. But the part that bothers me the most is how much Jeff is over in the corner, literally like twiddling his fingers with glee. (laughs) So I think that Live Tribal has just been exploited to the point of meaninglessness, similar to Jeff and his articulation of what is a blindside. Yeah. And I think that my biggest problem with Live Tribals for many, many years has been that the audience is completely in the dark because they are whispering and we literally don't know what they're saying. And so a vote can change and we have no idea what went into the vote until if in the next episode they decide to tell us what happened in the live tribal. And so many times we just never got the explanation and we would have to wait till like exit right. interviews or postseason press and stuff like that. And that just like takes away the joy of watching the strategic game play out. Now I will say in 41, finally, after many years of live tribals, they have figured out how to mic tribal council in such a way that they are able to get the audio of what is being whispered. And that makes it a much more enjoyable thing to watch i still don't love the concept but at least we have a sense of what's going on Uh, so i will give it that i think they're here to stay i don't see them changing the rules or anything like that but uh, you know if as long as we're getting the, the whole story then i can deal with the live tribals i don't think that live tribals mean that it's like that players are not good game players i think some people will can change a plan at 
during a live tribal uh, and it's probably the right thing to do so i don't think it's a knock against the players and their plan a's plan b's plan c's because i think probably a lot of plan b's and c's get enacted in a live tribal um, so as much as as a viewer i would love to see that play out in the open i have sort of like resigned myself to the fact that's never going to happen we have more on live tribals Hey, Sean and Evan, this is Chris coming at you from West Hollywood, California. We're going to try to keep this short. So here are my thoughts on this season. Uh, number one, I think live tribal as a practice needs to be outlawed. I think it just defeats the entire purpose of the show and is zero fun to watch. Two, I cannot get behind Jeff speaking into the camera because it happens so inconsistently. And when it does, it just always feels condescending and unnecessary. Um, and three... I feel like this season has been particularly mean-spirited. Uh, I'm curious what you guys think, but it really makes me miss the days of old Survivor where everyone was really good-natured about the fact that it was just a game and no one took their elimination too personally. Whereas this season feels like there's a lot of legitimate animosity being harbored uh, between players. Um, and it makes the game a little too tense and not as fun to watch. So those are my seasons, or <laughs> my general thoughts on this season. Um... As for Unsung Heroes, uh, I know it's been said before, but Taj from Token Sheens, I think she's the ultimate player. Great balance of social, uh, strategic, and uh, challenge competitor. Um, and I think she deserves another chance at the show. Also, I think Jeff really glosses over the fact that she was in SWV. I feel like in the reunion, he's like, oh yeah, Taj used to be in a little pop group, uh, but completely undervalues the cultural impact of swv as a group and i think maybe he just hasn't heard the song week before i don't know also shout out to lisa from survivor philippines uh mrs facts of life i know she got a little too emotionally involved in the game and with some of the players and that was maybe her downfall in the end but i really think she is just great tv she was a great strategist uh she knew uh how to sort of navigate herself in the game and deserves another chance uh at redemption so those are my thoughts love the podcast thank you guys curious what you think about everything okay chris i love your speaking voice <clears throat> to start with um I think Sean and I are like exchanging glances as we listen to this. I found season 41 to be one of the most amicable casts of all time. You want to talk about like bitter, mean spirited people in this game. There are so, I mean, Thailand comes to mind mm -hmm. uh, quickly, but there are so many seasons all where stars. they, oh my God, also, hello, um, where people are like it, just downright mean to one another. Fiji. And like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> So I, I can't agree with you there, but I did want to talk about the Jeff thing really fast because I was just listening to HBO Max has released like sort of an ancillary and just like that podcast with Michael Patrick King. And I was at the gym earlier and I was listening to Michael Patrick King, the creator of Sex and the City and, and just like that, talk about his show. And I was having this moment where I was like, so much of what Michael Patrick King thinks he's doing with the show is like not how I and I think others are receiving certain things. And I and, and as you were leaving that voice memo, I had a similar thought about Jeff with Michael Patrick, where it's like they think they have this grasp on this thing they made because in their mind, they made it. So who could know it better than the creator? But I feel like there's a parallel between Michael Patrick King and Jeff Probst in that like enough of us are receiving it 
vastly differently, but aligned uh, uh, us other people, we're aligned in how we're seeing it, that it does make one question about sort of like, who owns these things ultimately? And I, I just think in the case of Jeff, increasingly so, what all the aspects of the show he likes the most, the live tribals, the blind sides, the twists, etc. No doubt there are some people that like that, but I think that he uh, moves further and further away from like what we love. And your comment about Taj and his lack of re like re recognition about SVW sort of that underlines it entirely to me, which is like Jeff just sort of like. But then you look at like who who's the uh, uh, the the football coach from uh, from Nicaragua. Jimmy Johnson, and it's like, oh my God, the show went, oh, there was not a scene that would go by without talking about how great Jimmy Johnson was. But it's like, you have fucking Taj from SVW. Yeah, so I think that, again, says a lot about Jeff's worldview, but I also just think he sometimes has a rather myopic perspective on Survivor. And rent. It's SWV. S oh my God, look at me. <laughs> Ooh. But wasn't there a thing? Maybe I'm misremembering Wait, this or it was like another thing. Wait. But I feel like at the reunion, did they not show a picture of SWV and Jeff even was like pointed to the wrong person that was Taj? And it's an acronym on top of that. So I am like extra dumb. I apologize. <laughs> uh, I don't remember okay, that Well, much. don't worry. We're going to get we're going to get uh, make up for it because we have more Taj love right now. Okay. So I've watched most seasons of Survivor, skipping a few that I've heard are really bad. But I'm just now watching Token Teens. And I'm wondering why no one has told me about Tosh. She fucking rules. Why does no one talk about her? Why has she never come back? She's iconic. When I started the season, I cynically assumed that they were going to get her out early because A, she's a woman of color, and B, she's actually playing the game. But I'm up to final five, and she's still here, and I'm so glad. I know she doesn't win the season, but she's a great player. She finds an idol right away. She has amazing reaction shots to all the stupid shit that Coach says. Her and her husband are super hot together when he comes for the family visit, talking about how they want to fuck, even though she smells horrible, I'm sure. Then he gives her a fucking foot rub, <laughs> even though her feet are probably so gross, and that is love. <laughs> and last but not least, she's a famous singer. Not even mentioned on the show. I just found out recently during a Google, and just, wow. She's an icon, she's a legend, and she is the moment. Thanks for listening to me ramble. Love the show. Yeah. So I think that they actually did mention that she was in a pop group. She, I don't think they mentioned it by name, but sometimes her uh, lower third would say former pop star. And so it was definitely alluded to, but it was like way more important to the show that she was married to a football player. Like that was her, that was her identity on the show. And one thing I would just say about Taj is that I do actually think Taj is a prominent part of the edit of the show and gets a really rounded out um, uh, edit. I think that the the issue to me is more that the forgotten nature of her within the legacy of the show. So mm -hmm. I would blame, she's an example where I would blame less the show and more the fandom. It's like, you, you, you know, you use the iconic Wendy quote, she's a legend, she's, or she's an icon, she's a legend, she is the moment. I think that she is an icon, she is a legend. Unfortunately, she's not the moment, and I think that's the problem to pinpoint, which is that when we talk about great players, Tosh should be a person that's brought up more in, you know, these sort of, like, rankings that happen. And I think a lot of that, too, is just that you had these, these not only these dynamic characters of Steven versus JT, but you had this unlikely... 
I hate the term bromance, whatever. Unlikely friendship. Let's just call it a friendship. Okay, that's better. <laughs> uh, you had this unlikely friendship that formed that I think the show that sort of took on the sort of like, what is the narrative of this season? I think it became about JT and Steven in a way that sort of usurped uh, Taj, unfortunately. But I think the big question is returning player season when? Well, that's the thing. I think that the reason, one of the major reasons why Taj is forgotten is just because she hasn't returned. And the reason that she hasn't returned is because she does not want to return. Unfortunately, she has been asked many times. She tells it in kind of like a funny way and that like she went out to Token Jeans and was like, oh my God, Survivor's real. I didn't think it was going to be this real. I thought that there was going to be more like producers feeding me lines. I thought there was going to be more producers feeding me, feeding me. And uh, she found that that the hard way that Survivor was a real game and a real show. Uh, And she says that every time that she is asked back, she asks, okay, uh, have you started scripting the show yet? And they say no. And she says, then no, thank you. So Taj is a rich lady. <laughs> she doesn't yeah. need Survivor. I get it, but I do miss her very much because uh, she's like an incredibly dynamic and charismatic figure on TV. I wonder though if she could be coerced via a blood versus water season. Like I wonder if there's a way in which mm. like if it becomes a family affair, um, whether it be her husband, which is a get unto unto the show and unto itself, or, or one of her kids. But like I feel like I feel like never say never. Okay, let's all go flood. Taj's social media with requests for her to return. It is at Taj George. Okay, here we go. Here's a, another question. Hi, this is Saria. I'm calling in from Brooklyn, and I have a lot of thoughts on how diversity is talked about in the show and would love to share that with you all. So one of the things I want to talk about is how the exotification of non-Western countries is really not talked about at all, despite it being really woven into the fabric of the show itself. So naming a season Africa when every other place is really specific, the characters um, that are used in idols, set design, tribe names, even the fact that they're called tribes is all pretty problematic and not something that I think is really like addressed at all, having a quote-unquote gross food challenge when that's just another culture's food is something that's always been really troublesome to me as like a person of color and um, an Im- coming from an immigrant family and it's really interesting that that's not really addressed at any point when all of these other sort of like facets of diversity are really at the focal point right now. And then the other main point I really want to talk about is this idea of quote-unquote like why are all the POC not working together? Why is the Black Alliance trying to get out the Filipina girl? And I think that that illustrates a larger issue in our culture as well, that there's this assumption that people of color are homogenous. And I think that further just supports this white supremacist supremacist idea that there's white and then there's non-white when there's so much diversity within that. And then to take that another step further, I think it's really indicative of how our culture, particularly how social justice movements show up and that's to put all of the work on black folks to lift up and push forward all POC when we don't really see other POC doing the same thing. And I say that as both a black person and an Asian person who's kind of caught in the middle here. Um, And I think that that's something that Survivor just really illustrates that issue very clearly and is not really talked about outside of that context at all. 
Sorry, I know I'm sending super long messages, but those are the really the main two points I wanted to get across. I really appreciate the podcast. Um, it's really been helping me work through a lot of my thoughts on this season and past seasons. But I think those are kind of like the two main things that I really see as missing from the discourse, not only on this podcast, but just in general um, in the Survivor verse. And would just love to hear more people's thoughts and would just really like to hear people talk about those things more because I think we kind of skirt around them a lot of the times, but those are really prevalent in how Survivor comes to life in every single episode and yet is something that's really missed. But really appreciate you guys and can't wait to hear more. Thanks. Bye. First of all, I really, really appreciate these thoughts, Saria, and I appreciate you listening and I appreciate you um, holding us accountable because I think that's super important. I think that... It's as you mentioned, I think the show has sort of, especially with season 41, wanted to sort of make this attempt to say we are self-reflective and we are listening and as a result we are changing. But what you're sort of pointing out, and I think we've pointed it out to an extent, but you've done it uh, with far uh, far better nuance, right, is that this, this sort of attempt at sort of addressing some of the biases within the show uh, only goes so far. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, you're pointing out a comment I even made, and I think I asked, I posited this at one point on the podcast, where I was like, well, why is this all Black Alliance? Why would they go after Erica? And sort of doing, as you pointed out, sort of making uh, non-whiteness to be a monolith, uh, which, yeah, not great. So something I will definitely be thinking about. I guess what I would be curious from the show uh, or from probes or whatnot is I would love to hear these questions that you brought up posed to him directly or the producers. It's something that I wonder if they've ever been faced with the question. I think it's because of the efforts of like, for instance, the survivor diversity campaign that they had to sort of think about things in, in a more substantive manner and address them on the show. You mentioned the, the quote unquote gross food challenge, which we no longer see on the show. And I have to imagine that that is, I, 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 I mean, maybe this is actually factually true, but I have to imagine that was taken out of the show for the very reason that you pointed out. Um, but it was never addressed, right? In the same way that Jeff sort of wanted to have this whole conversation about why we're no longer saying, come on in, guys. I think that it would be uh, behoove of the show to sort of talk through these things more in the same way that they've been attempting to do uh, and break out some of the ways in which uh, things, like as you mentioned, with Survivor Africa, um, have those conversations now. I think a lot of fans would really appreciate it. And there's ways to do that, whether it be, you know, in po podcast form or ways that doesn't even necessarily have to take place on the show. But I think as fans of us, like us, who want to deep dive on the show, want to hear more, I think it'd be great to hear these producers talk about this. Have they ever been faced, uh, faced questions like that? Question: Have they ever faced questions like that before? Um, is it something they've been thinking about? Is it something that they want to address more? Um, I think more just holding people's feet to the fire. I think a lot about the the first questions um, that you raised, Saria, about the sort of like appropriation of local indigenous culture in the show and how intrinsic that is in the show's identity. And I think that like it's like this show started 21 years ago. The world was a very different place. Our understanding of what was appropriate and not appropriate was very different than it is today. And if I think if Survivor started today, we would not have tribes. They would not be named after like local indigenous words. Uh, it's essentially like in the early days, it was a bunch of white people pretending like playing playing indigenous, playing um, historical uh, sort of stereotypes 
types of indigenous. It was like, go and live in the forest and be quote unquote wild. And then like, you know, uh, sacrifice each other at this ritual tribal council, like all of these sort of like ideas that come from a colonial understanding of indigeneity, especially in the South Pacific. And this is something that I don't think Survivor has ever grappled with, and I don't think that they ever will. Like, you look at something like Come On In Guys and Removing the Guys, and that that was like a big deal. Imagine (laughs) removing the tribe has spoken. Imagine changing tribes to teams. Imagine... Uh, like not having tribe names. So you look at like uh, Survivor Australia and I noticed like I've, I've only seen one season in full, but in the last season I noticed that this season that takes place like in the outback or outback adjacent, like their tribe names were like fire. They weren't using indigenous terms to identify themselves, which I thought was really interesting, especially given like sort of the way that Aboriginal people are treated in Australia and the general sort of, uh, (laughs) I don't know that 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 country is necessarily as progressive as other countries. And that's not to say that the U.S. is progressive on this or that Canada is progressive on this. But I think I think depending on the country you're in, the sort of like understanding of what's appropriate, not appropriate are different. And so I was really struck by the tribe names in Australia. I wonder whether any of that will start to change in the U.S. version of the show or if they just don't even want to touch that. But I think it's like a huge question, a huge, this is like a really great example of of cultural appropriation in like American entertainment that I think will probably never be addressed. But I guess my question for Saria or, or someone else that feels strongly about the subject would be like, where is the balance between appropriation versus appreciation? And I'm not saying it's been struck on the show by any measure, but I would posit that question more because I have to imagine in its intention, I, and again, I just have to imagine that. I don't know for sure, but I have to imagine the, attention, the at- intention is appreciation of these cultures. Whether or not they're doing that masterfully, I think that's what's being called into question. Um, but... One question I have is like, so say speaking about the tribe name specifically, for instance, I mean, what if their effort is to pay homage uh, vis-a-vis these tribe names? But it's like, from what I'm hearing from you is like, that's not the way to do it. But could a better way to do it be like, if they're going to take on those names for them to better explain to the cast as well as the audience, the significance of those names? Like, I guess I wonder, Mm -hmm. is there a way that the show could do it better versus not doing it? So for instance, it's like, I always really appreciated the, again, quote, gross food challenge. But I think really the issue is the presentation of it as being gross, but perhaps it's bad in any context because you're going to have people gagging up food, which perhaps that in itself is sending the wrong message. I'm not sure. But I think what I'm what all of this to say, I'm interested in a more of a conversation about this than just uh, giving my opinion right now because this is something I, I really think that the show, I would be curious to have a, a more long-form conversation about this. So I think that, like, for example, if you look at a season like China, which they were only allowed to film in China – with the Chinese government's blessing, which is the case for every location, but it was unique in China because China hadn't allowed an American production to film in China in many, many, many years. So it was kind of a landmark deal for Survivor to film there. And part of the agreement was the highlighting of Chinese culture. And so 
the uh, like, and I mean, it was the government. So I don't know if that's the best place to get like the influence from, <laughs> especially the Chinese government. But that's sort of besides the point. But like, but what they were able to do was like do all of these like cultural rewards. So we saw them go to these temples. They started at a temple. You know, they ate on the Great Wall and they ate uh, tradition traditional food they had people come to the camp and show them like how to live off the land which is something that happens but it's like in china it was like just a local family who are farmers often when it's like in an island setting except for in 41 which we pointed out uh the people that they would send to the camp are like a very traditional indigenous person dressed in traditional garb and then in 41 you see an indigenous person who is just dressed in a, a jeans and a t-shirt, right? And so it's like presenting a different idea. Like one is a very stereotypical and traditional, and maybe that's what they wanted to do. I'm, but but it does send like a slightly different message that like these indigenous people are from the past and quote unquote right. like living in the wild versus in 41 where you had what was his name Nathan come and he was like a regular guy who shows you that like oh look these indigenous people they've they've carried their knowledge this is somebody living in the modern world and he's going to share his knowledge with these people playing this game and so there is a different message and there's different ways to go about it and then you think about things like um I can't remember if it was like Panama or Guatemala but it's like there was a uh, a season there where there was a huge focus on like human sacrifice and it's just like these sort of depictions are like, I don't know that they're necessarily the best in terms of celebrating culture as opposed to like keeping upon the stereotype. Yeah. I also think a lot about those instances that used to happen in the early seasons. I know notably it happened with Ethan when they would take uh, winners of a reward challenge off to see uh, local children and they'd come with a big bounty of like uh, things that they would need, toiletries and whatnot, sometimes like books and, and they would go and deliver them. And it very much watching it now, it's very much a white savior narrative often of like, you know, these white people, American people coming into these towns and just sort of going there and being able to give them the gifts of money and not deal with like the ramifications that come afterwards. At the same time, I think those are some of the most powerful moments on the show. Mm. And I think for a lot of people watching it, it might it might be their first exposure uh, to these lives that exist outside of their own. So again, I think it's a complex conversation mm-hmm. that I'd like to have more of. And I'd, I'd like us to bring more people to the table to have that conversation. But I really appreciate, Surya, uh, you coming to us and, and bringing this up because I think this is something that we want to have more discussion around on our podcast. Okay, let's put a pin in that then and go to our next question. Hi, Sean. Hi, Evan. I'm Kyle. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, And my unsung survivor player is Brenda Lowe uh, and Xi'an Huang. They're both, like, kind of iconic to me. Um, And my question for you guys is, as two queer men, do you feel an inherent responsibility to keep other queer players in the game as long as possible? Um, For me personally, as a gender non-conforming queer Asian American, I would feel like I have to keep the Asian players and the queer players in the game as long as possible, regardless of our differences, regardless of of if we got along or not. My ethical and moral obligation, I feel like, would be to get them as far as possible. And I was wondering what your guys' perspective on that was. Can it be done? Is it valid? Um, And given the conversations from this most recent episode, like, is it possible? That most recent episode, I I assume 
being that we got this uh, after the race discussion at Tribal Council, that, that sort of monumental discussion that we had in 41. I think this is a great question. First of all, thank you for giving us your pronouns. Everyone calling in, please feel free to give us your pronouns. Uh, secondly, I have to say, I don't think that I would feel an obligation to keep anybody for any reason. Uh, if I was going to play the game, and I know that everybody likes to think they're going to go play this ruthless game, but I personally think that uh, I sort of side with like Deshaun on this issue of like, if I was going out there to play Survivor, I would be going out to win Survivor. And I think I would be checking my uh, ethical and moral obligations or whatever like community obligations I would feel that I would have to other people out there based on identity or even based on personality like people I get along with like I don't think I, I could be wrong but I don't think I would let that get in the way I wouldn't want that to get in the way of a game we're completely aligned I also just think about Colton um and that is a Horrible, horrible representation <laughs> of the LGBTQ plus community, like despicable. And so not only would I take Colton out right away, I would do it with glee. So no, I would feel no inherent responsibility. Um, however, in sort of unpacking the um, LGBTQ, I think that if there were trans players, non-binary players, um, out bisexual players, I think that would change things because um, the lack of representation of them in the past. Um, but to me, there's I, in those instances I, to, to what you were saying, Sean. I could court, I could separate the game of it all, but I would hope to maybe uh, have some meaningful converse. I, I guess I would care more about making a lasting friendship with them or like put more effort into aligning on like a social level, but not, but not really for gameplay sake, but like I would be mm -hmm. just like super ex because it's so important for me to see more trans representation, for instance, on this show. Um, I would definitely like, yeah, I definitely would want, but again, I'm, this is why I'm never playing the show. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I am glad to have to never be in this position, but your question just makes me think about the fact like when we say LGBTQ plus representation, this show has ha had a ton of white gay representation for better and for worse. And so I am certainly more interested in the show itself taking on uh, more aspects of the acronym. And uh, one thing I think Ricard uh, articulated so beautifully was the idea that um, there's so much nuance and identity beyond just uh, LGBTQ plus ness, if you will. So yeah, but all bets are off. If, if Sean, I think you're more inclined to play than I am. Um, so I think I would like, I would, I would make an effort, uh, in terms of bringing people or like trying to uh, keep a group intact or keep a relationship intact. But I think about the Shan vote off in the last season and I really think that that was the right time to cut. And I think you have to know the right time to cut. There is like a certain amount that you can uplift like your fellow community, but ultimately it is a game and only one person can win. And you need to take the shot before they take the shot at you. But again, too, it's like in the case of like white gay men, there's been two white gay winners. So I think there's less of a... Uh, Yes, sure. I would love to have an LGBTQ plus winner, but I am not keen for it to be a white man. So there's complexities around sort of like uh, what I want out of my queer winner moving forward. And it's not, I don't right. want another so Richard Hatch. So you don't want me to win? 
Well, <laughs> I'd be rooting for you. Okay, let's go to You can another... win Australia. Okay. <clears throat> let's go to another question about queerness or in the or in the sphere. Hi, Sean. Hi, Evan. Um, like Evan, I've been a survivor watcher during the pandemic. Um, but this is for your mailbag episode. I have two questions. Um, so the first one is I'm currently on Game Changers, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts about the Zeke Varner situation and then something that happened in Marquesas with Boston Rob and John Carroll. Um, Boston Rob kind of outs him in a way. Um, and I and it is a more private talk versus a tribal council, but it is caught on TV. And I just kind of want to get your two take on um, the differences between those two situations and the similarities and the, the whole outing situation. My second question is, like a lot of people, I've probably Googled Survivor Season ranking a ton. And um, the Purple Rock podcast has this list. I'm sure everyone in this fandom kind of knows about that. But I think... It's a good list, but I think it has too much power on the internet and with Google and SEO and all of that. So I'd want to challenge you two to come up with your own list at some point um, to kind of rival their thoughts. Because I know Evan has mentioned he loves Nicaragua and so do I. Okay. Um, thanks. Love the podcast. You guys are great. Bye. Should we, we need to do that, obviously. Should we work on like an official ranking? We should. I think there's a few rankings we need to do, and a season ranking is one of them. Before we get to that, can we talk about John Carroll? Because, I, I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know that I have much to say about the Zeke outing by Jeff Farner. I think it has all been said already. Obviously, it was awful to watch, uncomfortable, just wrong all around. The John Carroll situation is really interesting because I think it has been largely lost to history that Boston Rob was like pretty homophobic in that season and made several comments about John and John was a much stronger player than Boston Rob in that season was never given the opportunity to come I mean I don't know if he was given the opportunity but he never returns uh, to play a game again but he was like the for half of that season the strategic mastermind of that season and I think that that is very much lost to history. And the way that Rob talked about him and calling him a big time queer and like saying he doesn't want to sleep next to him in the shelter and like all these things are like really lost to history. And I think and I suspect that Rob has sort of like changed his views on that. I am basing this on nothing except that he seems like a somewhat decent person. However, the show is also have, has a vested interest in portraying him as a decent person because he is the face of Survivor for some reason. Uh, so I think that that's a really interesting one. And, you know, maybe now is a good time to say that we will have John Carroll on this podcast and we will talk about this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a big point of conversation. I think that it's, yeah, I think it's worth looking at the timeline of things too in that, John Carroll was a out gay man who went on a reality television show in 2001, I believe they take Marquesas or 2002. Wait, it would be 2002. Um, so they taped in 2001. I thought they taped in 2002. They taped just after 9-11. Oh, 
Okay, fair. Okay, so 2001. But he was an out gay man who ostensibly, uh, at a time when there were not a lot of LGBTQ plus people on television at all. So I think there had to have been, and, and we will ask him about this, but an inherent understanding that he was going to, his gayness was going to come out in some sense. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I just feel like there is, I think the Zeke comparison with John is is, is tricky uh, in the timeline of it all because um, thankfully when Zeke came around, there was much more LGBTQ plus represent- representation on television, not within Survivor, we should say. And also that situation is made more complex by Jeff Garner being a part of the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. As Sean said, though, I feel like it's been discussed ad nauseum. I feel like if anything, I look forward to having Zeke on our podcast at some point to sort of get his 2022 perspective on it um, because the world has shifted quite a bit since he played in Game Changers. Um, but the John Carroll moment is... Is is interesting in that it doesn't feel. I don't perceive it as an outing so much as I do uh, Rob Mariano's ignorance showing. But I do have the mindset of like, if you know better, you do better. And I have to imagine where Rob was at in his life and his world at the time. He had never encountered a gay person. If anything, your question just makes me want to talk. It's like the one thing I'd want to ask Rob about uh, would be Mm -hmm. sort of how he looks back on that moment. But I can't say honestly that that moment like upsets me in any kind of way. Um, But I would love John Carroll's thoughts on it then and now. Um, But I just think it's like the Rudy thing in season one. It was very normal. It was just so normalized to bag on gay people but i think half the time in that time i think it was just it was so ingrained in people from their upbringings and their surroundings that i don't know if i necessarily identify it as homophobia so much as i do ignorance whereas the jeff varner instance is like absolutely transphobia it's violent transphobia so that's why i'm not too keen to compare those two but i understand why you want to compare them because there's you know validity in comparing them but i just think uh I don't have an assessment of Rob Mariano's character in the way that I can look at Jeff Varner and be like, you are a piece of shit in life. Like that is evident through that action. Mm -hmm. Before we move on, let's talk quickly about the ranking question, which, yeah, I think we should rank. And I just want to talk about the Purple uh, Rock podcast ranking because, and then of course, since since their ranking, um, Rob has a podcast did their ranking based on a fan vote. And I think we have our issues with that ranking as well, huh. because there are certain, I mean, like the purple rock podcast ranking puts Nicaragua at dead last. I have to season, laugh. like 40th season. And <clears throat> there are certain seasons like, look, I think that Thailand for all of its flaws, like, I mean, we all know that I love Helen Glover. And I just think that there's so much to love about that season that it deserves well above 38th place, which is where the Purple Rock uh, ranking has it. And then the one that I will, the hill I will die on is One World. I think One World is a fantastic season and deserves so much more. And I would, if I'm rewatching a season, I would way rather watch One World than Cagayan. I am disgusted by the Purple Rock ranking to see Africa (laughs) at 29. And then to see Game Changers at 28, it's like Game Changers. Marquesas Chang- is at 27. It's just wild. Marquesas is an all-time favorite for me. It's like the fact that Game Changers is above Africa is 
just wild to me. And then also just seeing All-Stars that far back. It's like, yes, All-Stars falls apart, but there's too much to love. Uh, yeah, I, I, I truly think that this ranking is just absolutely wild. But I knew from the moment I clicked into it and saw uh, Nicaragua last place that we were not going to be aligned. But like, I have a feeling this, it's, I feel like there's sort of a litmus test here, which is that like, where do you place Vanuatu? Not you, Sean, but you, the survivor viewer. I feel like there are people that are going to put Vanuatu at the very end here like us, excuse me, like, like them. And there are people like us who are going to see more value in a Vanuatu season. And I feel like Vanuatu very much is that season that, that for me holds that sort of, uh, can sort of, you can tell a lot about a survivor fan from where they place Vanuatu. Mm -hmm. Sounds like our ranking is coming. Okay. Let's go to another question. Hey, Sean and Evan, this is Brooke from outside of Seattle. Um, I have a more general question for you guys. Um, about returning players. It's been a rumor. I'm not sure if it's confirmed or not, but the rumor is that Jeff Probst has said that we will not see a returning player come back from the first 40 seasons. Um, specifically, I think the quote was, no one needs to see Ozzy play for another time, which I disagree. But um, that I just am curious what your guys' thoughts are on that, because then I always think about, like, well, what about the later players that haven't even had a chance to have a returning player season yet? You know, like thinking of like, oh gosh, Eileen, like, ah, oh, she's just, I love Eileen. So Eileen is one, um, even Dominic, Lauren. I would love to see some of those people come back and they just never even got the opportunity. So if we're just drawing the line in the sand, any player that played before season 40 is not coming back. I just don't think that's fair. And I wanted to know your guys' thoughts on it. Yeah, so this is something that Jeff Probst mentioned in, uh, I think, pre-season press for 41, saying like, you know, this is a new era of Survivor, and I don't see us doing a returning player season for some time. And I think like the era of returning players from before Winners at War is like behind us. I think that I echo the sentiment here that it's not fair to those who played post Game Changers, but I also feel like Jeff is full of crap in this instance. I think that a returning player season will happen. I suspect there will be a second chances too, uh, which has long been rumored. I suspect that a Legends season could still happen at some point in the future, and they are never going to overlook the cast of David versus Goliath. They are never going to overlook like certain you know, they're never going to overlook certain players from 38, 39. I mean, Kelly, I feel like, uh, has a right to come back. I don't see them not inviting her back to a returning player season. So I just think that it was hyperbole from Jeff that he is going to regret one day. Completely agree. Shame on Jeff in general and in this moment. And I would just uh, add that I think that we're also going to get a blood versus water season to come, but there would be no reason not to have a returning player season. And also Jeff loves the returning player seasons. So mm. it's just so funny that he would like portray like returning player seasons as something that's not worthwhile when it's one of my absolute favorite things about survivor and to survivors credit, in 41 seasons, I think we've gotten what? Like, um, well, All-Stars versus returning players is more complicated. But I just think in compar comparing how many original seasons we've gotten on Survivor, 
compared to the returning player seasons versus Drag Race, which has had 13 regular seasons and six all-star seasons right now. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the fact that Survivor consistently has such a large pool of players to pull from. And so to your point about like all of the post 35 season 35 players you want back, which I'm not so into like I, those I'm less hungry for so much as I am Kathy Marquesas Kathy uh, finally getting her third time out. So yes, I am. I think Jeff is yeah, is ridiculous, but I want I want second chances too. I want third chances. I want the season of all the first out players. I want the legend seasons. I want blood versus water. I want. I think someone we spoke to recently had an idea um, for a mm -hmm. returning player season that you'll be hearing about soon. So yes, I. Returning player seasons, not all day, every day, but we need more of them. Sometimes. That means sometimes. Okay, let's go to another question. Hi, Sean. Hi, Evan. My name is Claire from Pittsburgh, and I have so many finale thoughts, so I'll try to keep this brief. But basically, I want to know why Erica was done so dirty by the edit. She's a historic winner. She's deserving. She's likable. And yet, to me, they made Xander out to be the hero of this story. And even the consensus online seems to be that Xander was robbed, which I don't agree with. And if you look at, like, the cute Survivor um, graphic post on Instagram, like, the receipts of everybody's moves, they gave Xander more moves than Erica. And to me, like, the only theory I can come up with to explain this total purple edit of Erica is they like knew Survivor fans would be upset about like the wokeness of the season and like the conversations around race and so they wanted to blame the cast and not the show so they gave us the most under edited winner since Natalie and Samoa I really just can't think of anything else I'm so baffled so I would love to hear your thoughts thanks so much guys love the podcast bye now I don't know the stats on this is I don't know that Erica is the most under-edited winner since Natalie. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on that. I should have that information. I know that somebody has spreadsheeted that because I've actually seen it. But I mean, I don't wouldn't there the be the guy, though? Where she falls. The guy from Extinction Island. Well, he got a decent amount of screen time and from Edge of Extinction. I guess. I don't know. But, you know, I, I, much has been said about Erica's edit. Uh, let's, I, I want to pair this with the next question. So let me play this as well. Hello, Sean. And hello, Evan. Congratulations on a fabulous first season of covering Survivor on your podcast. Uh, it has been a wonderful ride. I've loved listening to the episodes every Thursday. Um, I had a question of for your mailbag uh, that... You know, it's kind of a tricky one, but I think it's one that y'all can handle. I'm hearing a lot that, you know, praising Erica, the first female winner in six, seven seasons, whatever it is. Um, and there's this sense that, like, it's the show's fault that there hasn't been a female winner. Um, and I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I, are we to blame the show? Is it a tisk tisk on the show? Or is it the game? Like... Like, it, they vote each other out, you know? Um, is it the show's fault, and why? What could be done? Hi, Johnny. It's the show's fault. I think it's the show's fault. <laughs> I think, yeah, much has been said about the way that the game itself favors men and favors strength. Uh, there has also been a lot of conversation about how the final tribal format favors men and favors like bombastic players. And I think that that's 
probably true, especially in the new final tribal format in the discussion, because in the old format, you had each individual juror step up and ask a question to each person or whoever they wanted. But usually I think they were directed at each person, whether or not we saw that on TV. Uh, And so it gave each person an opportunity to give their perspective where in the discussion, the sort of open forum discussion, it's kind of like very easy to get lost in the mix if you are not the bombastic player. And so often women, especially women who play an under the radar game like Erica, don't really have an opportunity to shine in those moments. Now, Erica was able to do that. And I think that's because she was against Xander, who had zero respect from the jury, and Deshaun, who also was on pretty rocky footing with the jury. So she, I don't want to say that she won by default, but she was able to overcome the obstacles of the format of Final Tribal uh, against all odds. I also think like the conversation around Erica's edit is like a little gnawing to me in that I think that she was not around a lot for the first half of the season, but a lot of that is circumstantial. Like her tribe did not go to tribal council and they had to balance. This is one of the disadvantages of having a three tribe season is that they had to balance showing three tribes, um, And so I just think there was less opportunity in the show to show her off. I think if you would have gotten more of Erica early in the season when the tribe wasn't going to tribal, you would have had the, not you, but like some people would have had the reverse thought and been like, oh, Erica's definitely the winner because they're going out of their way to show her. So I do think there's an element of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And also it's like, yes, I think that, I think there is a conversation around Xander being over edited. That, I think, is the conversation, and I think too many people are focusing on Erica being quote-unquote under-edited when I think Erica sort of fell victim to one of the traps of the current format of the show. Um, I would be curious how this season would have played out in a two-season format, which would have given more possibility of just showing tribe life uh, and having more players in conversation with one another. What are they supposed to show of Erica in those episodes where her tribe isn't going to tribal council, especially when there wasn't the need to strategize as much? So what what were they supposed to do? Well, my complaint with it is that I'm rewatching David versus Goliath right now, and they have swapped from two to three tribes, and they're doing a very good job of showing all three tribes and the dynamics going on, even for the ones that are not going to tribal council. And it's like, I know they can do it. Now, 41 had the disadvantage of having many, many, many pieces of paper to read on the show. And that sucked up a lot of time. Going to that excursion island sucked up a lot of time. And Erica was not ever on one of those excursions. So it was a little tricky. My complaint is that the the story we did get for Erica pre-merge was about how she was trying to target Sydney and that her tribe was plotting to throw a challenge to get her out as a result of that when I think there's some truth to that but all the comments that were made about her relationship to Deshaun and to Danny uh, towards the end of the game painted a very different picture of what the social dynamic at the Luvu tribe actually was and so we clearly did not get the truth or the whole truth from Luvu pre-merge And I think that that's a combination of both like a mistake 
of the editors, but also the absolute overwhelming amount of advantages we had to work our way through in the pre-merge. I am going to go to a voicemail from a familiar voice to Evan, and it is about the shot in the dark. Hi, Sean and Evan. It's Billy. Long time, long time. I wanted to call in and talk about some statistics about the shot in the dark, which might be interesting from like a production standpoint, since Evan was talking about how there could be some production riggery. And if there's, if every player who, if every player took their shot in the dark, there is a 96.2% chance that one of them will work. So let's say we only get 10 shot in the darks this season, then there is an 83.8% chance. So there's a really high percent chance that we are going to get some shot in the dark working this season. Um, so I think it's a pretty high, that's a pretty high number and curious on your thoughts about those odds. Well, hi, Billy. Um, <laughs> I'm a, a big fan of yours as well. I guess the question is, people aren't using the shot in the dark. So I, I, I don't, obviously you're giving facts, mm -hmm. um, which is wonderful. And that, I, yes, I did not know that, but you mentioned that in those 10 instances, well, we only got one instance and I would, I would actually venture that if they are to bring it back, even fewer players would be, uh, you know, choosing to use it based off of the fact that it wasn't used at all. Like they've never, it has never successfully been implemented. So why try it? So, your statistics are all accurate, and I, I agree with you that they're – or not agree. You've pointed out to me, right, that there could be great reason to use it, but clearly the players don't feel incentivized enough, and so that's the problem. On the accuracy of the statistics, I cannot comment. I didn't come here to do math, but I'm glad that Billy has done it for us because, <laughs> because the shot in the dark really seems like a true shot in the dark to me in that I would – probably i can't imagine a scenario in which i would use it unless literally somebody came to me and was like you are absolutely 100 going home again i'm watching david versus goliath right now and i just uh saw elizabeth's boot and uh, there's this scene where angelina pulls elizabeth aside angelina's upset because she had wanted to target christian post-merge and her whole goliath alliance is like no it that's not the right move we need to target elizabeth right now and so she calls Elizabeth aside and is like, hey, I just want to let you know you're going home. Now, in that situation, if I were Elizabeth and I had a shot in the dark, that's when I would play it. And that's the only time I would play it. And even then, Elizabeth does a really good job of trying to point out uh, to Angelina's alliance that she has kind of like spilled their strategy and information to the person getting voted out and so there might be a chance people will vote against angelina and so it's like so even then like if you can get a few people to flip your vote is so valuable that like am i really going to play it but i'll be really curious to see what happens in 42 like i th i think it's coming back uh, i don't know for sure but like it's i would be very surprised if it wasn't coming back and i'll be really curious to see how a brand new crop of people who don't know about it will treat it uh, moving forward. 
And sorry, one thing that relates to this that actually circles back to a, a question from a few ago is this sort of like Jeff saying no more returning player seasons. But one of the really exciting reasons to have a returning player season, in addition to all the obvious reasons, is for them to have a stab at these new twists within the game. I mean, it was so fun watching Jerry and Heroes versus Villains contend with an immunity idol for the very first time, right? Whereas like so many of these players, it's like it's just part of the nomenclature of the game at this point. So I think that there are a lot of twists some of which I'd like to see go, but some that I speculate will continue on that it would be fun to see older players of the game sort of integrate mm -hmm. into their gameplay. Okay, let's go to the big question on everyone's minds. Was season 41, now that it's all over, the hardest season ever? Huh. Hey, Evan and Sean, it's Brendan in Charlotte, North Carolina. Can we dispel this notion that season 41 was the quote, hardest season ever? I'm rewatching Marquesas right now, and that season was so much harder. Not only was it 39 days, they did not give them food or flint. They had to boil their own water. They had bugs that ate them alive. It's just crazy that somehow we've made this idea that a 26-day season is, is uh, harder. Um, just want to hear you guys talk about that. I uh, love the podcast. Thanks so much. It's been a great season. This reminds me of the Michael Patrick King thing from earlier, which is just like Jeff has this way in which he thinks the aspects of the game he thinks are the most interesting that do not align with many of the viewers. And at the end of the day, I mean, we've spoken about this this topic at length, but we interviewed uh, a former player, I, I guess, uh, well, we'll wait, I guess we'll wait to say who. You've already said it on social media. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, yes. <laughs> we interviewed Jerry Manthe. We have that coming up. And one thing that Jerry says in the interview is that they were not given water, right, during her season. And I think that was the case for for several seasons beyond her season. It's like the fact that, like, these contestants in these seasons get water alone tells you it's not the hardest season. Like, it's just, it's factually not the hardest, but it's also a bit gaslighty that Jeff, like, puts this information out there to the viewer when we have so many tentacles of proof of it not being the case i think about survivor guatemala where the heat was seemingly completely unbearable and the humidity they were not allowed to go in the water because of the dangerous animals in the water i don't remember specifically what was in the water but remember there was a, a reward where they literally got like a net built in the water so that they could go into some of it it was almost like having a swimming pool within the river uh, and that was like a huge, a, that was a huge reward for them because they could actually cool off and they were swarmed with bugs. And then I think about like Fiji, which like on one hand, I mean, you had the haves and have nots and the have nots had it so bad. Like people were, people were passing out. Right. So like, I, and then in Korong, we had all the medevacs. I think when Jeff started saying the hardest season ever, I was preparing myself for a whole bunch of medevacs. Uh, because that's what I associate with the hardest season ever. Now, I have been talking to our friend Ricard. I told him we got a question about this, and he wanted to weigh in on the hardest season ever. Hi, Sean. Hi, Evan. How are you both doing? This is Ricard from season 41 of Survivor. Thank you so much for having me on recently after my finale to do a little deep dive into my game. Um, I know you're doing a mailbag episode soon, and I thought... First, I wanted to ask a question, but I was like, actually, maybe I'll just answer what inevitably will be asked to you on if you think season 41 was the hardest season ever. And because I know I'm asked that all the damn time. 
And so I thought I would love to give my perspective on kind of the confusion around the marketing. I, I don't think we were ever intended to be marketed as physically the hardest season ever. There are definitely some elements that are really, really tricky. And, but, but I've always felt you can't compare two seasons. Like there's just truly no way to compare one season to another because there are too many food advantages and there are too many rewards and some seasons you have a loved one with you and it, there's just so many things that you can't definitively say what's physically harder but I will say I think they meant it's the hardest to win and I, I do stand by that I, I really do think season 41 is the hardest to win or at least up there with that being that typically there are two main elements that you can kind of navigate when you go into the game of Survivor. You can have the knowledge of past seasons, and then you can really try and work the system with the twists or the theme of your season that's presented to you, right? And so with past seasons knowledge, you know, we we went into it knowing, okay, there's going to be an idol. When you play an idol, it's going to go back in the game, there's going to be a merge at some point. There's going to be a tribe swap. You know, there are all these things that are just iconic. But not a single iconic thing was actually done the way we intended it would be done. Not a single thing. We did not get fire and were guaranteed it once you went to tribal. It was always taken away from you. We didn't get the food staple. We did not get rice. We kept waiting for tribe swaps and they never came. You find an idol, but it's not actually an idol and you have to kind of out yourself as having one. Then when an idol is played or flushed out of the game, it never came back into the game. The merge was not really the merge. Immunity, sometimes you don't even want to go for it. And then if you die with the do or die, even if you have an idol and the best social game in the entire Survivor franchise, that means absolutely nothing. So with all of those twists in play, there's really, no, like to me, there's not a ton of debate that it's the hardest game to navigate the actual rules and uh, hurdles of the game itself. And I think a really great example is the, the treks that we went on. Because most seasons, you can really work the system, right? You know, in Micronesia, they have Exile Island. You can send the same damn people over and over. You can send Alliance members to find that idol or, you know, plant a stick and trick somebody. Like, there were a lot of things that you could do to kind of mess with the game. In Gabon, they kept sending sugar to the sugar shack over and over and over again so that nobody else would have access to an idol potentially. And so what's so wild about something as simple as a trek, nothing in my season was ever, ever done twice, ever. The first trek, we got to decide as a tribe who went on it. Then when we felt we had some knowledge of what to expect on these treks, whether it be true or not, we were like, okay, th then we let's try and do some gameplay. Let's figure out who we want to send on the second trek. Let's figure out how the how we can make this best benefit our alliance. But actually, the second trek, we didn't get to choose. The winning tribe got to choose. So then, you know, we pre-plan again. Oh, yeah, if we win the next challenge, we're going to send this person and we're going to do this. Oh, nope. Actually, the third trek, you need to find this random-ass envelope that's planted at your fire pit. <laughs> like, okay, uh, that's all search for the envelope for trek number four then and decide who opens it pre, like predetermine who opens it. Oh, no, there's no more treks. Oh, we're actually just skipping a day and then treks are going to come back unexpectedly. Nothing ever happened twice. And so you really couldn't work the game. 
And that's really, really hard mentally when you're out there. I remember after Do or Die, we were so we were caught so off guard with Do or Die, and it was really, really terrifying. I, I wish they could zoom in on my hands when I put out my red rock because I was shaking violently, realizing my game could be ending right then. In that moment, I could have fucked up my game, and it was terrifying. And so as an alliance with Erica, Heather, um, Xander, and myself, we said, hey, if there's do or die again, all of us put out the gray rock so that none of us will have to do do or die and we can stay intact as an alliance of four. And then it never came back. It's like we just tried so hard to navigate the game and it was just too hard because you really never knew what to expect. And in the end, you could have the best social game in the world and still lose Survivor. And that's pretty heartbreaking and really, really hard to accept. But that is the new Survivor. And so I do stand by Survivor 41 being one of the absolute hardest to win. So those are my thoughts. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay. But this just makes me think about the earlier question about deserved. And so I'm not negating anything Ricard just said, but it's like we're arguing two different things here. So it's like it's it's I mean, that's his experience. Right. So I can't go against that. But we're talking about I think so that sounds to me like what the 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 distinction here is when people are disagreeing with Jeff's sentiment that it's the hardest season, they're talking about the life on the island. The physicality. That seems, yeah, the physicality, that seems to be the distinction. I don't disagree with Ricard's point. I think it's just arguing a different point. Yeah, yeah. And I think that like, because it's been so unclear, and I think the marketing around the season was just very confusing in terms of the hardest ever, because we had heard that before. We've heard hardest ever before, and it's always referenced in the physicality of the season. It's never referenced in like the most uh, unpredictable. And I think we've heard most unpredictable before, and that refers to gameplay. And so like we're conditioned to understand the hardest season ever to mean the physicality. And then when it's edited into the show to be like, this is the hardest season ever, it's often like around the temperature or like the difficulty of the challenges or whatever, right? So there's that aspect too. Ricard makes an interesting point about it being the hardest season to kind of like get to the end with because, uh, and I think he's completely right because it's very hard to win a game when you don't know the rules of the game. And I think that that's like a a serious flaw that modern Survivor I was going to say, I see that more, yeah. yeah. It's not not a good thing. Uh, It's not something that I would be, promoting the season with if i were jeff uh, you know you might want to say like the game is a monster but i don't know that i would like be proud of that necessarily um so anyways i appreciate ricard for sending in his perspective on the hardest season ever because i think that that's not the perspective uh that we typically have when we approach uh, that idea okay just a few last questions here Hi, Sean and Evan. Love the show. Thank you so much for your full coverage of it and your recaps and all the interviews. It's really, really great. I wanted to call in to talk about twists. Um, I come to Survivor from a drag race and Big Brother world where kind of the vibe is very much expect the unexpected. Um, and so I'm very familiar with twists. I do love a good twist. Um, and I think that there's sometimes an issue when, when twists go too far and producers go a little crazy with trying to like think of the big, big, brightest, newest thing. And I'm of two minds. Um, if you remember, uh, Drag Race All-Stars 2, when they first introduced the lip sync for your legacy twist, 
um, where the girls eliminated one another. I think that was a really incredible twist. I think it completely changed the game, and I think that it created, set the stage for, uh, honestly, probably one of the best seasons of reality television ever, if not the best. Um, But if you think about All-Stars nowadays, you have (laughs) um, just... So many twists, the lip sync assassin, you know, the all the girls voting, everything. And also on Big Brother, you know, we've maybe over twisted ourselves as well. So I just wanted to say that I love twists and I think that the contestants on the season of Survivor do kind of need to understand that they've signed themselves up for a TV show and we are, in fact, making good TV. And I think the problem comes when the producers don't necessarily understand what making good TV means. Um, and think that they're just going to throw every possible thing at the wall. Um, I really do love the chaos that some crazy twists can throw into a Survivor season. I'm not, shall we say, a Survivor purist. Um, I am very much a newcomer, but um, I do respect um, traditional gameplay as well. And I think we might have reached a point where we're at All-Stars 5, All-Stars 6 level of all these like overcomplicated circuitous twists with Survivor. And I'm a little bit worried about where it's going to go because they've already filmed season 42. So anyway, thank you guys so much and love your show. I too am worried about 42 for many reasons. Um, but, but one thing that I think is worth noting about what you pointed out in sort of identifying the lip sync for your legacy twist as a part of all stars too. Um, and I agree with you. I think best season of reality television, I would put it, I mean, I would put Micronesia with it, but like, it's definitely up there. But what I think is interesting to point out is the idea of like, the difference between a twi- the integration of a twist and when a twist becomes expectation, right? So you look at, for instance, Ricard's comment where he said part of going on Survivor now is knowledge, right? Knowing that when an idol is played, it was going to be rehidden. But there was a time when that was not known, right? And so you had people actually going out, finding another idol, and they couldn't believe it, the, the good fortune of finding another idol. I think one thing that I wish Survivor would... I, I am not a purist either, Mm, I'm not entirely a purist. Like, I like the idol, but I think that what happens with a lot of modern Survivor is there's too much expectation around twists, and then sometimes their effort to undo that. So, like, for instance, this season was like, you think it's going to be a merge? Well, it's not a merge, and it's a whole new twist. I think, like, the twisting on top of twists is not the solution, Mm. whereas I really liked the twist on Thailand, which is... You're going to the same beach and you're together. You think it's a merge, only you find out that you're on the same beach. However, it's not yet a merge. I think that was like a fun twist and we only saw that happen once. I would like to see more of these sort of twists like that that are integrated into a single season um, that there's less of an expectation around. So I think that's the, for me, is the tricky thing is just the normalcy of the twists. Yeah, I think that twists can work. And like, look at, for example, the idol nullifier. Um, I think it's a terrible advantage. But like, hey, when it was played right, it was like an iconic moment of TV. So it's really, really tough to sort of like qualify what's good and bad because so often we decide that something is bad because of the outcome and whether or not we're happy with the outcome. When it comes to twists, I like to like boil it down to, does it fundamentally change the game in a way that either doesn't make sense 
or isn't fair. And unfortunately, Survivor is getting to a place where it does exactly that. Uh, speaking about Drag Race, like I actually think that the lip sync for your legs, this is probably not a hot take, but I don't really follow Drag Race commentary, but like the lip sync for your legacy twist in All Stars 2, like I think actually changed the game for the worse because how do you pick, how do you win All Stars when it's about voting out the competition? Like, should it not be about who is the best? Uh, but I'm sure that that conversation has already been had and put to rest. But it's like that kind of a twist, although it creates for like decent TV. I don't love that because I think it interferes with what the game is actually about. Okay, let's go to another one. Hey guys, this is Mikey from Sydney. My favorite unsung survivor character is Victoria from Edge of Extinction. I just want to ask you guys about um, what you th your thoughts are on Corinne from Gabon and um caramel like do we like her as a character are we completely team sugar like what just what what are your thoughts on corinne thanks corinne 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 i find corinne to be one of the most despicable people who has ever played this game both inside the game and out she will never be on the podcast <laughs> whether she wanted to be or not <laughs> i find her to be an attention seeking loser on social media i think she has zero redeeming qualities i know that lots of people enjoy her and i know lots of people enjoyed her on Moen and that she wasn't like quite as bad as she was in gabon but her social media presence is desperate and pathetic in my opinion cosine <laughs> oh karen okay let's go to a final question about jeff probst hey guys Brandy from Austin, uh, big fan. Um, I wanted to ask you guys a question about Jeff. Do you think that Survivor, the show, could continue to exist without Jeff as the host? Could we ever see a woman or a person of color or just a you know non cishet white guy host the show? I mean, even the Australian version. That host is basically Jeff. He's like a bizarro world version of Jeff. So do you think that we could ever see that? Or do you think we could never escape the on-screen Jeff of it all? Okay, I think this is such a fascinating question because I'm thinking about the fact that RuPaul has only ever hosted Drag Race. Julie Chen has only ever hosted Big Brother. And... I'm thinking of like a famous uh, host switch up being when Simon and Paula and Randy exited Idol and the show more or less fell apart, you know, after the fact. It's like you couldn't replace, you couldn't replace them, that, that chemistry. But then I think about The Voice, you know, which, I mean, God bless people that have stuck with that show for this long, but they have this <laughs> rotating panel of hosts, which they've managed to work. They've managed to make it work. You know, people still want to come and see it which is to say that I think there's a world in which, yes, Jeff could be replaced. It's just a matter of the who, not the if. And I think the who is really challenging because as we've seen with this fandom, there's like this um, attachment to 
things not changing, right? It's like the whole reason why um, come on in or come in you guys became a conversation point. It's such a sticking point for so many is because there are tent poles of this show um, that I think fans really rely on. That said, some have changed. Like one of my favorite aspects of Survivor was the different locations and they decided to drop that at one point and people don't even really think about it anymore. And now, for instance, we're no longer doing themed seasons. Now we're just season 42. So things have changed and certain things fans glom onto and certain ones they don't. So yes, I think Jeff can be ousted or, or, or leave or retire or whatever it would be. Um, I guess my question would be putting it out to the to fans of Drop Your Buffs and Survivor and that Purple Rock listicle, whatever that was. Uh, <laughs> my question would just sort of be like, who who do we want in contention? Similar to how we are casting the movie of Heather's life, I would be curious for our new question to be having our listeners sort of weigh in on Jeff's replacement. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to hear suggestions on Jeff's replacement. For me, like I immediately go to a previous player and then who is that going to be? And I don't want it to be Boston Rob, which is like the natural choice, I feel like, for CBS. But no. I feel like even like other natural choices, like Parvati, would be like an excellent host and I think would be great at asking questions at Tribal Council. But does she have the presence to like run a challenge? Like, I don't, mm, it's hard to say. <clears throat> Maybe there's a more random choice that would work really well. I mean, Rosie O'Donnell would be a really fun. Brenda has Are you a gonna lot say of- that? Oh. Brenda has a lot of TV experience. <laughs> yes, she does. So does Andrea. Andrea has a lot of TV experience. Andrea, I think, could do very well. Uh, I think about, like, I saw a clip from the Russian version of Survivor, and they have this, like, beautiful woman hosting with, like, this, like, long blonde hair and uh, very commanding. I saw her, like, really chastising people at, at Tribal Council. Didn't get a word of it, but it was interesting. Um, <laughs> Tyra Banks would be a really fun person to put in the mix here. I mean, I think yeah. if anything, there was talk a long time ago. I believe it was like when they first introduced the Emmy category of best reality competition host. And there was talk at one point about Rue and Jeff swapping jobs for a day. Like this was like <laughs> a joke at the time. But I actually think it would be really interesting even for a, an episode or something, but I do think it'd be fun to just do this bizarro world in which Jeff Probst is the host of Drag Race and RuPaul is the host of Survivor. I think if anything, I would like to see them sort of make attempts towards, I, I don't know, like it's like Jeff's sick one day, let's bring in somebody else or, um, it I don't know. It's wild that Jeff has never missed an episode. Never missed. Yeah. Even through all those issues with his voice, you know? This, was that this <laughs> season was the voice issues? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Never oh, that missed. feels like a million years ago. But yeah, so I, I I don't see a world in which it happens just because of Jeff's um, vested interest in the show beyond just his hosting duties. But yeah, if anything, too, I would be curious if Jeff has ever thought about this at all, who he'd want to replace him. Hmm. I have a feeling, as you pointed out, I have a feeling it would also be Boston Rob based off of the shared love that he and the network feel for him. But that would suck. That would suck ass. So I really hope it doesn't happen. But um, I, I, yeah, Sandra would also be a delight. Oh, amazing! I don't, <laughs> I don't know. If she'd be a great host, <laughs> but it would be delightful. She'd be great to at reading her, out. Absolutely. I was gonna say reading out the votes. I feel like is the part of her that I'd really come for. Yeah, it's hard to imagine somebody that's not Jeff. Like, like I'm thinking, like, oh, Colby would be great, but he. It's because he's like Jeff. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I'm trying. Like it would, you would almost, you'd want it to be a winner. Uh, maybe Erica's the next host. Although we'll now I'm kind of like maybe Lizzie Hasselbeck. Maybe like that's her opportunity. Maybe that's hey, what there's she's TV to say experience. Yes to. Hello. Yeah, I'm literally like running through Eliza Orleans. Here for it. That is a show I would like to watch. Absolutely, Courtney. <laughs> Courtney. Okay, well, we've got some good options here. Lisa yeah. Welchel has TV experience. She does. That she does. <laughs> okay, well, let's wrap it up. This has been a long one, but it has been such a pleasure to get to finally answer a whole bunch of these. Even with a over two-hour podcast, we did not even get to all of our mailbag episode uh, voice memos. So I have to thank everybody who sent one in. I hope that we got to your question, even if it wasn't played on the air, because there were so, so many good ones. And I can't wait to do this again. So please, like, do not stop sending me voice mails uh, that are just sort of random thoughts about Survivor. If you're rewatching a season and you have a thought, like, yeah, send that's it our my sweet way. spot. Yeah. yeah, that's what we love. Uh, so so please keep those coming and you know the sooner that we get a full mailbag the sooner we will be having another one of these episodes so and and we will work on our definitive power ranking and we will figure out in what form that will take and when but that is we're gonna put that in the incubator i think we've got a few rankings to do like i i would like to rank like favorite tribal council speeches yes final tribal speeches i would love to do like a fantasy casting of second chance too uh we got a few lists to work on and and the definitive ranking is just one of them so uh let us know what uh, other lists you'd like to hear make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast so that you do not miss our upcoming interview with jerry manthe teased previously in this episode it is a whopping long interview i think it's our longest interview yet and she was such a delight so you aren't going to want to miss that and uh, we have a whole lot of content planned for you uh, coming up in the new year as well so make sure you're subscribed rate and review tell your friends about us Uh, thank you for listening and keep the voicemails coming bye bye